0: Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And
1: I'm Dana Duncan.
0: And tonight we're doing number 44, Pillow Talk from 1959 starring Rock Hudson and Doris Day as well as Tony Randall. And I know this is not the episode that we told you we would be bringing you last week. We did both watch Apollo 13 and we will be bringing that one to you soon. However, if you do follow me on Facebook, you will have seen, unfortunately, Dad, you have not been feeling well this week. So we had to try and call an audible Uh, last night. uh, I decided that I was going to offer. Someone gave me a lifeline, our returning guest star, Chris Duncan. Hello. And we are going to be doing Pillow Talk because it is her favorite movie. As you may have known already, if you had listened to our Sleepless in Seattle episode, I think that's number 30 in our long list of movies we've done in this season one. This has been her favorite movie for as long as I can remember knowing what her favorite movie was. So, this was an easy choice to talk through. We're going to get to this in a second. Uh, Let's just kind of give you the basic plot summary, because I know this isn't one that a lot of people remember or know of had they not been around at the time playboy songwriter brad allen played by rock hudson succession of romances annoys his neighbor interior designer jan morrow played by doris day who shares a telephone party line with him and hears all his breezy routines after jan unsuccessfully lodges a complaint against him brad sets about to seduce her in the guise of a sincere and upstanding texas rancher when mutual friend jonathan played by Tony Randall, discovers that his best friend is moving in on the girl he desires. However, sparks fly. This movie actually did get quite a bit of nomination and recognition by the Academy Awards, which I was a bit surprised by by the time we were getting into the research for this. It was nominated for Best Actress for Doris Day, Supporting Actress for Thelma Ritter, Art Direction, Set Decoration, uh, comma Color, which has to be the most defined award I've ever seen in the history of the Academy Awards and finally original score it won for best original screenplay and in 2009 it was a national film registry entrant so what is your relationship to this movie mom it is your favorite you can lead off
2: I just find this movie absolutely delightful, and I have thought that from the very first time that I watched it. It made me laugh. Um, I like the wholesomeness of the movie, but there's also, especially for the time, some um, risque moments in some of the um, the shots and the scenes. For example, when they're both in the bathtub and they have their legs up against the wall and they're both sitting in bubbles. So there's a lot of innuendo with this film uh, because, of course, at the time you couldn't show a lot of activity. Um, It even talks about the fact that she's over 21 and so uh, he shouldn't be afraid to ask her to go away for the weekend. And I just... Uh, I think that the humor in it is amazing. I think the story is silly. And yet, I think it shows that at some point, uh, men who tend to like to play the field finally need to grow up and decide that, you know, one woman is for them, and I I just think it's an age-old story, and I think that Doris Day, like I said, is completely wholesome, and um, I just love the humor in it. I can't remember the first time I saw this movie, but I have watched this movie multiple times every single year of my life. I think I probably saw it um, early in our marriage when we first got you know, cable TV. I don't remember watching it the first time with Dad, so I'm not sure exactly where I saw it. Um, But it has been a favorite of mine for... since I was a young adult, for sure.
0: So I don't have any relationship to this movie at all, because, simply put, this was my first viewing. It is available on Peacock right now, and I think on the free version of Peacock, so you don't even have to pay for anything, you just have to download the service and bear with a couple of commercials. But... Since that is mom's favorite movie, I'm certain that you have somewhat of a relationship to this movie, Dad. What is it?
1: Well, um, your mother did see this movie before we met, because when we were talking about films, she told me this was her favorite film, and I had never heard of it. So that's that would have been the first time I watched it. I would probably say we're, I don't even know, it may have even been yet while we were living in Beloit.
0: The next question we always ask, and Dad, I'll I'll give you first crack. What is this movie about?
1: This movie is about uh, the interplay of two people coming to terms with their own reality, which is Doris Day perceived herself as being happy with just occasionally going out with guys, having her career, her home, doing her own thing. Rock Hudson is happy with playing the field and having multiple girlfriends and wooing women right and left, and they meet each other and they realize there's more to life and relationships than what they had, and ultimately they end up together.
0: Mom, you've kind of already hinted at it when we talked about your relationship to this movie, but what do you think it's about?
2: I, I agree with him I think that it's it's the realization that the, that there's more to life than um, not having some sort of substantive relationship and I think that um, there's a scene when uh, Jonathan played by Tony Randall is talking to him about um, about his three marriages and there comes a time in a man's life where he he um, doesn't mind being... Uh, a tree that's cut down and uh, rock Hudson sits there and every time he says something uh, rock Hudson says, why, why, why? And, um, but it's this whole back and forth with Tony Randall having had three marriages. And, um, and he said that that was what was missing in Brad Allen's life. And um, I think he came to that realization and, and Jan at that time was a modern woman and was very happy in her life. And Alma brought forth to her that, hey, you know, there is a time when having a man or having a relationship and coming home to somebody every day is, is a really good thing. So I think it just shows the need for that interconnection and that personal relationship with somebody to grow old with.
1: It can be summarized as far as Doris Day's character by the simple line that Alma, uh, Thelma Ritter said, which is, if there's anything worse than a woman living alone, it's a woman saying she likes it.
0: Yes. I know that you two have a much longer relationship with this movie, but this is playing out a trope I've seen a lot in different romantic comedies, per se. So I'm going to make this a little bit more generic, but... A charismatic man-child grows up and realizes what he actually wants out of his life. It's what happens when you meet that one person who changes everything.
1: But you're missing then from her side because it's equal. I, I didn't pick that up the first several times I watched it, but having looked at it more of a crit- in a critical manner, I realized also it's not just him that had to grow up, it's her. I... Don't know if I necessarily missed
0: her side of it. It's just that probably 75% of this movie is Rock Hudson. Outside of maybe the first couple of scenes where she's really involved in trying to get her own individualized phone line and really uh, the 60 miles driving to New York, this isn't a Doris Day movie per se. It's a Rock Hudson movie with Doris Day, which is why... That will be reflected in where I'm going to go next. I'm going to segue. My best performance goes to Rock Hudson, and I knew it from just about the first 15 minutes or so. When Rock Hudson starts singing, I'm like, oh, he's got some range. I didn't know he could sing, and it's not great. It's not like he's a professional musician in that regard. But if it's really him playing the piano, that's an extra. I have a feeling it wasn't because you could never see his hands when he was playing the piano. But this is a guy who had to play multiple characters really within the same storyline. And then he starts singing in French pretty flawlessly. So unless he just memorized the one song, I mean, he just does it so generically that, I don't know, there was an aura to him. And this is the comp that I thought would bring it to modern day. I know he's a lost movie star. He used to be one of the biggest movie stars on the planet. But really, after his untimely demise, which we're going to bring up here you know, probably in the second half of this show, because it, uh, there's something I want to specifically talk about in relation to that, he is a guy that I think for the most part people have kind of passed over as one of the old, engaging movie stars. And the comp that I would have to modern day that I think would be more relevant and bring this to life for people that are a little bit younger, I think he is the older version of Matthew McConaughey.
2: I don't know. I think George Clooney. He's smooth like George Clooney.
0: I think of their career paths and the type of characters they play where they're kind of cowboy-esque and I think McConaughey. He's constantly starring in rom-coms where Clooney really has never been, and they did certain action films, westerns, that sort of thing, and they, they have this stylistic that I find to be very similar.
1: Well, oh, with Rock Hudson, he was actually trained as a musician because he his um, I think his mother was a choir director, and so he sang and performed with the Methodist uh, choir when he was in, uh, in high school, um, and then went off to World War II. Now, he served in World War II as an airplane mechanic, so he may have been stationed in France and picked up French while he was there. Um, but at the time this film was done, he was a, already a huge star because three years before he had been nominated for an Academy Award for Giant,
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, he had already been to that high in his career. I think at this point, he was already one of the biggest stars on the planet at that point. I just, I think if you were to make a comp, that one seems more relevant than ever. And I think that for people, because honestly, I didn't know anything he'd been in until probably this year, let alone seen anything he'd been in. This was my first time viewing this movie. I only saw Giant for the first time this year. I don't really remember anything else he was in as far as movies that I've seen, and I never watched Macmillan and Wife. So it's not like I had a very familiarized version of Rock Hudson. But, Ma, this is your movie. Who is your best performer?
2: Mine was also Rock Hudson. I just think that he um, plays the part of the suave uh, man who who basically has the world by the tail. He's made a lot of money making Broadway shows, and um, I think he fits that character just by his hair and his good looks. I, I guess I forgot how tall he was. I was looking at him in comparison to Tony Randall last night, and he just carries himself very well. I think that he played both the playboy and, you know, the falling in man falling in love by accident, wonderfully.
0: I was very surprised when they notably mentioned multiple times in this movie that he was six sex. He does not seem nearly that big to me on screen. And yet when they said it, I'm like, okay, after the initial shock, I guess I can see it.
1: He was. Um, having grown up in uh, the 70s um, when McMillan and Wife was on, and by the time he did McMillan and Wife, his movie career kind of faded away. And the reason why is because he got ostracized because of his sexual orientation. So when NBC came to him and offered him this, this was the only work he had. But um, Susan St. James played his wife in the film, or in the TV series, which was really several, um, it was a serial TV show is what it was. They would do two-hour segments along the same groups and along the same types of storylines and then each week. But Susan St. James was like 5'4", 5'5", and he'd just tower over her. Um, So I knew he was that tall. Dad, who is your best performer? I had um, Rock Hudson simply because he had su- had to have such range. He had to go from being a playboy to be looking innocent. The whole bashfulness, um, embarrassment uh, when she's looking at his apartment and flipping the switches. He just had a range. And really, this was his first comic film or comedic performance. So I think it expanded his range um, significantly. The film was built around him, and you can see that it was built around him. So
0: OK, then who was your best secondary performer?
1: Uh, Tony Randall. Tony Randall set the place in this film for the career he ended up with for the next um, 20 years, playing a neurotic. And um, that's exactly, I mean, the character he is in this film pretty much is what he ended up becoming known for in what is his most famous role as Felix Unger in the TV version of The Odd Couple. And um, this, is, this is the persona. When you think of Tony Randall, you think of somebody who's nitpicky, um, neurotic, you know, and this, this film kind of set that tone for his career. In real life, I'm told he was not nearly as um, neurotic as this. He was much more open and carefree, much more um, genuine than this. And and this was a portrayal of a character that just kind of permeated through his performances. Um, But it really was a strong performance to that regard and kind of set him up for the rest of his career. I gave him
0: my best secondary performer, and I think it's because he had to tread a very fine line. He is supposed to be the antagonist, more or less, of this film, and then he has to switch and he has to be the supportive best friend about two-thirds of the way through the movie and yet still be likable. We very often are led to believe that the guys with the money, the guys that have all the privileges, the guys that have been married and divorced three times really are not worth being likable. And yet he plays this so well that you're never turned off completely by him even though you're not necessarily rooting for him to succeed. And so for all of those things, I just thought he was incredibly engaging and I I thought deserved the recognition here. Ma, who is your secondary character that you, or excuse me, secondary performance you would like to nominate?
2: Well, I think for me it's a toss-up between um, Doris Day and Thelma Ritter playing Alma. Um, I find her hysterical. I love the fact that she, at the end of the film, sort of finds herself also in a relationship or thinking about a relationship with the elevator man and... You know, him telling her that despite her problems, she's still a beautiful woman and that she shouldn't need to be going out drinking every night. I love how she handles Rock Hudson in the bar while they're drinking. And Doris Day is just classic. There's just something about her. She is a beautiful singer. She is um, a beautiful actress. She has such grace and carries out the, the character flawlessly. Uh, and how she thinks and how she feels. And like I said, I think both people, both actors, both Rock Hudson and Doris Day, make this believable. They make it feel real. And I I like that about it. It's kind of earthy in that way.
0: I'm going to give a slightly controversial side of the Thelma Ritter conversation. For the majority of the movie, until about... 80%, 85% through this film, I couldn't understand why the hell Thelma Ritter was even in this movie. She had no purpose and no delivery of anything to continue to serve the plot until that final scene where she's in the bar with Rock Hudson, and that has some payoff. But otherwise, it's a fairly wasted character for most of it, and I found her to be incredibly unlikable due to her um, excessive drinking. Oh, I, I don't think completely. so. Yeah,
2: I was gonna I was gonna say I disagree with you in that. I think she's the one that makes the whole relationship with um with Brad Allen or with Rock Hudson's character possible. She's the one who's listening on the phone and all dreamy eyed about him and keeps telling telling her, you know, that that she should be more romantic. And you know, the quote that dad had earlier about Living the woman living alone, I thought that was profound, and I think that made Doris Day's character think twice about her relationships. So I, I think I think she was good in the film. I think she was very supportive of everything
1: that was happening. Her role in the ha- in the first half of the epi- of the film is to be Doris Day's conscience. She's constantly doing these one liners. To needle her into uh, doing something, you know, from the is there's anything worse than a woman living alone? It's a woman saying she likes it. Another line I wrote down, uh, it only takes one sip of of wine to know it's a good bottle. You know, she kept giving those little zingers constantly that kind of always made Dorstay pause and think about things. I suppose that you're correct in that
0: as a technical matter, but given that I've never, I didn't engage with it at least in this viewing, and again, it was my first viewing, so it's an initial impression. But that I didn't view this much as a Doris Day movie, then the conscience doesn't need me to be there in order for me to engage in this movie. But let's move into most charismatic. For me, it's Rod Hudson. Does anybody have any real disagreement?
1: I had Doris Day, and okay. the reason I gave it to her is I had to put her in some place, and I had thought about both her or Rock Hudson, but this this changed her career. And I find it interesting that the two biggest things in her film career uh, involved two things that she was opposed to. One is, is she's renowned for the song K Sera and it was a song that Hitchcock found the man who knew too much and wanted her to sing she hated the song refused to sing the song he said you're under contract if you don't i'm suing you so she sang it and it became like her her mantra this film she turned down the role originally because she was always a girl next door and the producer said no 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 no. we're gonna make you into a sex symbol and a big time star And this movie transformed transformed her from being the girl next door, a tomboy type, made her into one of the top film stars of the early 1960s.
0: I think the case for Rog Hudson is pretty obvious, but Mom, why don't you give it why you thought he was that for you?
2: Oh, I told you. I think that he... um, So I think that the character dressed and acted like he did i think it was a natural for him he's suave like that he carries himself well he's uh, worldly and so but then again he turns around and he plays this this crazy naive um texan and i think between the two he's just got a lot of charisma and versatility and i i guess that's why i That's my opinion.
0: To me, he's got that intangible quality that we've talked about in the last few episodes, Dad, of the guy who's the half-smile, the Sean Connery-like, maybe Gary Cooper. Um, We've talked about it, Steve McQueen, or or some of these other leading men characters. If you're looking modern, George Clooney's got it, Brad Pitt's got it, Matt Damon's got it. This guy who has such an air of confidence— that they seem like they've got everything under control even when everything's going wrong. And because of that, you're just genuinely attracted to that intangible quality. All right, let's get to best scene. Mom, as with most of the things tonight, I'm going to let you lead off, and you can nominate the first scene. Okay. This
2: is it is my favorite. My favorite scene in this whole film is when they're at, I mean, there's a lot of really good ones, but it's when he and she are sitting at a piano bar and Tony Randall's character has hired a private investigator to figure out who, you know, Texas and, or Rex, excuse me, Rex Stetson is, and the investigator tells him it's his best friend and they have him tailed and they go down to this piano bar and the, they're singing and carrying on there and, and, um, and then Tony Randall's character comes up behind him while Jan is in the bathroom and says, I'm on to you. I need you to, you know, tell her goodbye and pack her up in a, a taxi and send her off. And you're going to go out to my cabin to finish writing those songs that I'm paying you to be writing. And the piano player is listening to this whole conversation and, and, Jan comes back and he tells her he's going to go to the cabin and in so doing convinces her that that she should come along with him. And so as they're getting up and he's packing her off in a taxi to go home and, and pack her bags so she can go to the cabin, the player changes songs and catches the fact that he just completely lied to Jan's morrow and start singing you lied you dog and you'll be sorry and just the look that rock hudson's character gives the piano player
1: was... but then he even winked
2: yeah and he winks yeah so i i just that is just my favorite thing because somebody outside of the whole movie catches him lying to her she knows the piano player and he she told him without telling him that she knew that he was going to be in trouble you know that life was going to catch up with him I just think that's just so funny and uh, that's my favorite scene I have a couple others too but that's my favorite one
0: Dad what do you have first to nominate help with my
1: cousin Moose (laughs) I I just love that scene Uh, just to watch him have to think so quickly on his feet and then so completely turn Tony Randall around to get him to leave the restaurant so he doesn't catch him with Jan. That's just I just think that was brilliant. The fact that he puts
2: his hand behind Tony Randall's head and waves at the woman, you know, the heavyset woman in the corner so that she waves back at him was classic.
0: Yeah, there's always something uh, that he seems to be able to catch just in time until it finally all goes wrong, uh, where he's able to work himself through this. It's somewhat of a con movie, which I think it's it makes this a very layered movie in that it's got so many different plot lines going on in inside the main one. My first one that I'm going to do, I'm going to do the opening serenade, and more or less it's where you get this complete engrossment of the character of brad allen but through the eyes of jan and it's on the other side of the party line that he's serenading all of these women he just interchanges the name and a few variables to each of these songs maybe changes the language completely because he sings it the one time in french and that he's this complete playboy and you get so much out of this scene even though they give almost no exposition whatsoever. And I think it's a very clever use of screenwriting, at least in the opening, where you're dropping these two people into this world and making it real. And it's a great use of world building. I thought it was a very well-done scene between the two and as something that you're thinking about, but I think it is an important one to establish where everybody's going from the outset.
1: I have... um the uh, te- or the telephone company scene where she goes to complain to Hayden Rourke at the telephone company about Brad Allen and then the investigator goes to him and he like you know, oh, so what do you want to check out? You. I mean, I'm here to talk to you. Um, so that whole thing just further sets in place that this guy is just so smooth and can so handle himself in every adverse situation. Mom, what do you have down as your next one?
2: I love the scene where um, she takes him into the the apartment that she created for him. And, of course, it's so god-awful and just gaudy. And she storms out, and, and he he's trying to describe to her how he gave up everything for her and how he wanted her or to create this apartment in however she wanted it. He gave her carte blanche because he fell in love with her and the realization that it didn't matter if he was Rex Stetson or if he was Brad Allen that that um, she also was in love with him, but just the look on his face when you know Tony Randall goes in and then to the apartment then turns around and said, "Oh no, don't go in, don't go in and he was imagining this you know beautifully decorated apartment and walks in and it looks like a I don't know how you would describe it <laughs> it, it
1: kind of looked like a uh, sultan's uh brothel yes,
2: right, a sultan's brothel, and it was so awful that and when he's you know carrying her across the whole city with the the electric blanket cord dragging be- <laughs> dragging behind i don't know it's a toss up
0: let's see here i'll nominate another one as well and it's one of i think it's going to end up being my favorite one because it might be one of the biggest laughs that i got in this movie and it's i guess i nicknamed it brad and rex's late night call Where he calls her after he's dropped her off, Uh, she's given him her number, he calls her while she's sleeping, not really, but thinking through it, oh, I, shucks, I should have done this and that and the other thing, and then he interrupts his own phone call by basically complaining that she's on the line when it's his half hour, except it's him making the phone call, and the back-and-forth interplay where she doesn't realize who it is, but he's kind of toying with her and has her really on a string. I just think it was a masterful way of making him seem even more likable and charismatic in that moment, but that you bring the audience into this moment of movie magic that he can toy with her and we enjoy it because we're in on the magic trick, and it becomes a funny moment as a result.
1: Dad, what do you have for your next one? Uh, Brad and uh, Alma uh, drinking. (laughs) Oh, yeah. enjoyed her picking his head up off the table in order to talk to him? (laughs) Well... (laughs) I've seen people like that. So yeah, I kind of thought that was funny. She drank him right under the table. Ma, do you have another scene you'd like to nominate?
2: Yes, I like the um when the the client, I don't know who played the client, but the client was in um Perot's decorating place and this client is in there and she's picking out the fertility goddess and and she goes and she's got this vase and She's holding it up, and she says, oh, I think I'll take this. And the owner, Poirot, says, you know, Ming Dynasty doesn't belong in a rumpus room. And I just thought that was really funny. Here, you know, she, she has no taste, and yet she has all of these, all this money to be decorating and putting all these things together and then thinks that, you know, this fertility goddess should go in the room, and this Ming vase, she was going to rewire for a lamp, and... Um, I just thought it kind of played a, a a farce on all these people who have money but yet have no taste, and um, I, I just thought it was cute. I just loved the line about the Ming Dynasty in the Rumpus Room. Nobody calls it that anymore, but
1: oh, and he, his, Perot's comment was um, the woman has the taste of a water buffalo. Yeah. And then why do you work with her? Because she has more lots of money.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, All right, I'm going to nominate one. I can't believe it hasn't come up yet, but Brad's doctor's visit. Oh, (laughs) I have that down. He tries to escape, and he ends up in an obstetrics uh, waiting room, and then they play off this running gag through the rest of the movie where uh, medical science, maybe we've seen something that we've never seen before, and a man can have a baby. Yes. Yes. It's a nice little funny bridge moment that continues the plot and doesn't detract from anything, but gives you this weird subplot underneath it that gives a a moment of lightness. And it's just, they eventually pay it off at the very, very end, but it's a nice thing to um, add into the writing,
1: and the fact that it didn't detract at all just makes it that much better. Um, I had one other scene that I liked, which is the bathtub scene where they're talking to each other on the phone and they do it as a split screen and they manage to get their feet to link up uh, like they're touching on the split screen, both in the bathtub. Yes. Um, I thought that was kind of a way of portraying a sense of intimacy developing between the two without, um, it was a level of sophistication that they could do and imply a lot that still couldn't be shown in 1959.
0: That is definitely a point in favor of its novelty. Again, that's going to come up later. Did either of you have any other ones that you'd like to do? I don't
2: know if you would say it's a favorite scene, but I... When they started um, dating and they were going to different places in New York, I thought the filmography was really good where they overlaid the pictures of them holding hands um, in front of all these famous things in New York and all these things that they were doing. And I just I really enjoyed it because, well, I've been to New York, so I've seen some of those things. but but just the way that she had different outfits on, so you can tell it was different days and and um that they were enjoying each other's company. and And I think that might have been something kind of new for that time. I'm not sure, but where they where they put their picture over the top of the the film of, you know what was happening in the background. and So I just thought that was really unique. It's not really a scene or interplay between people, but more of just showing the time span that they had spent so much time together going to all these various things.
0: Uh, Before we get to that, Mom, you already said that the piano bar is your favorite scene. I've kind of alluded to mine being the, uh, let's say, late night call, more or less. Dad, what was your favorite scene?
1: Uh, The scene at the bar, the hidden
0: door. All right. So then, since we have that out of the way, what then, out of the ones we've nominated to this point, is the best scene for you? Mom, I'll let you go first.
2: I don't know. I think maybe the the bathtub with their legs up on the wall, and I just think that shows the level of the intimacy that they had been striving for and that both of them had been missing in their life.
1: Well, I actually had thought seriously about, and I'm not just going to use the the one scene with Brad and uh, the, and Rex going back and forth on the phone. I was going to do the entire montage where they went through and he kept dropping notes. First, you know, maybe the guy is a phony. He's going to take you up to his room and just, you know, make a pass at you. And then the next time is, is well, maybe, you know, the, he's one of those guys that likes recipes and his mom
2: <laughs> the foreshadowing of the dates yeah
1: yeah and he was set her up to to make it easier for him to score with her later um to me that was that was what i loved. i thought that was a classic
0: i'm gonna nominate brad trying to pawn off uh his cousin moose uh and or family friend i think family friend is the the word they used it for it in the in the uh movie itself but that to me that's kind of indicative of where this movie went for probably a good oh I don't know 40% of it in the middle and how much he has to think on his feet it's probably one of the best uses of rock hudson in that moment that he he has that persona that we just mentioned that, that charismatic nature, the intangible quality. and that's the epitome of it in that moment. Oh, but to, the,
2: one of the best lines of the film, not the best, but you know one of the best lines of the film is in there and it's it's uh, it's your moose. happy hunting as he leaves the and I just
0: love that. I just it, may, it makes me laugh. It's your moose. happy hunting. He just carries that off so well. It was a really good interplay between Randall and Hudson in the moment where it seemed like neither one was uh, lower than the other one as far as talent and that they could really have that nice interplay moment where you're you're clearly getting it from the, the side of everybody's had that friend that's tried to pawn somebody off on them or try and do that uh, unruly favor. But in this case, he's trying to do the opposite and trying to get rid of him by making up this ruse. And so it, it just works on a multi-level nature. All right, so most indelible moment for you. What is the thing from watching this that you remember the most? Mom, it is your favorite movie. What is your most indelible thing?
2: I would say him carrying her across the city with that... Uh he, uh, electric blanket cord hanging from <laughs> from her as he's, as he's, you know, struggling through the city and the, the woman with the little boy that stops and says, mommy, what are they doing? And she said, oh, I'll tell you when you grow up. Um, you know, and he, and she asks for the officer to, to stop. He's, you know, and the officer says, oh, I, I can't remember the exact line, but but, you know, and they're friends and he's he would be carrying her off, too. So I I, I just I think that um, it shows, again, the length that he went to the realization that he had come upon the best thing in his life to this point and he wasn't going to let it get away. I've always wondered, however, how he got into her apartment because her apartment would have been locked and Alma wasn't there yet so how he just barged in on her apartment and got into her room to carry her off is he kicked,
1: he kicked in, in the door, the door. okay he, you listen you go back and watch it he kicked in the door by you the can way hear the um, lock breaking yeah <laughs> so he was angry at that point so all right most indelible thing to me Brad Allen's light
0: switches <laughs>
2: Yeah, Yeah. the classic Bachelor pad.
0: I'm not going to ruin it for you. Go watch the movie. It is available basically for free. Just download the Peacock app, and they should be paying me the advertising dollars for making you go watch it. But uh, it is available for you. You will uh, know exactly what I'm talking about when you see it. All right, this is a good spot to take a quick break. We will be right back. Welcome back. Let's get into Best Lines. Mom, what is your first nominee? I um, love
2: the um, line when he first calls her and you'll, uh, he wants to go out to dinner with her. It was the night after they had first, uh, you know, ridden back in the car and he drops her off and all that. And she, she says... He asked her on a date the following night, and she says, oh, no, I always keep tomorrow night open. So I really love that line. It makes me laugh every single time. He says, I suppose you have something going on tomorrow night. And she said, oh, no, I always keep tomorrow night open.
1: That does seem like your type of line. <laughs> I heard lines like that at one point in time.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: When you were much more charming, Dad. What is your first nominee?
1: Boy, uh, Mr. Allen, this may come as a surprise to you, but there are some men who don't ev- end every sentence with a proposition. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that's a good one.
0: <laughs> All right, the first one I'll nominate, uh, this one has more personal history, and if uh, you want to contact us, our email is greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, but Brad... I've had hangovers before, but this time, even my hair hurts. <laughs> yeah. Ma, what is your next nominee?
2: I love when Tony Randall is talking, and um, he says, I'm part of a minority group, millionaires.
0: Uh, and this is the part why I ended up nominating him where I did for Best Secondary Performance, because... That entire line would make everybody unlikable, except apparently Tony Randall. Everybody thinks they're a victim, especially people with money. Yes. All right, Dad, what do you got
1: next? Well, what they say in Texas is never drink anything stronger than you or older.
0: Uh, The next one I had down... Brad, she is the sweetest. She is the loveliest. She is the most talented woman I have ever met. That's what you said when you married that stripper. She wasn't a stripper. She was an exotic dancer with trained doves. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, We'll come back around when we get to novelty. But a very risque line for 1959. Yes. Uh, Mom, what do you got next?
2: You're like a pot-bellied stove on a frosty morning.
0: Oh, God. You had to go for the the heartwarming one? Yeah.
1: So in character. Dad, what do you got?
0: If
2: <laughs>
1: there's anything worse than a woman living alone, it's a woman saying or she likes it. We've already given some of the context for that
0: one, so I'm going to launch into my next one. Uh... Look, I don't know what's bothering you, but don't take your bedroom problems out on me. I have no bedroom problems. There's nothing in my bedroom that bothers me. Oh, that's too bad. If you want the level of innuendo, I give you Exhibit A. Mom, what's next up for you?
2: Um, At the beginning of the movie when she's talking to... Um, to Brad on the phone and he tells her that her life is drab and she says, if I could get a call in sometimes, my life wouldn't be so drab.
1: (laughs) Dad, do you have any other ones? I mentioned this earlier. It only takes one sip of wine to know it's a good bottle. Uh, The last one that I have, well, actually I
0: have a couple more. So uh, Jan and Brad... Jan, he was a perfect gentleman. Brad, that's even worse than I thought. What do you mean? Well, there are some men who, hmm, how shall I put it? Well, they're very fond of their mothers. They like to share bits of gossip, collect recipes. What a vicious thing to say. Mm -hmm. That is dripping with innuendo. Uh, I think most people anymore would have a hard time... (laughs) guessing, uh, that he's being, uh, referential to Lighten the Loafers, but, uh, given the way that people pretty much tiptoed around that subject for a long time, this is very fitting. Do either of you have any others left? I still got two other small ones.
2: I do. I have, um, uh, Harry, the elevator guy, and Jan are in the elevator, and Harry says to Jan, "Why does she have to go and get stoned every night?" And Jan says, "I don't know, Harry. Maybe she has a party line." <laughs> so it was just cute, though the, the inner the interaction, how angry she was about this whole party line business, and and um, you know just the interplay, his little piece in the in the puzzle of this
0: movie it was very cute. Dad, do you have any remaining?
1: Uh, No, I do not.
2: There is one left, and I said this before when we were talking about the scene, and that is, it's your moose. Happy hunting.
0: All right, I've got two other small ones. Can you believe that? They sent a woman. That's like sending a marshmallow to put out a bonfire. (laughs) Yes. The other one I had, uh, Brad, in reference to Alma, The State Department could use her. What a party girl she'd make in Moscow. (laughs) Yes. All right. So out of all of these, we have to uh, come up with a best line. If you want, we can have an honorable mention and then funniest line. So what is the best line to you? Ma, we will start with you.
2: I really like the one that's, oh, no, I always keep tomorrow night open.
1: You are my inspiration. If you notice the the notes for that portion of it, every time there's something pivotal, they play those notes. Yes, they do. And that was done on purpose. So I'm going to take
0: my uh, bedroom problems because it's repeated throughout the movie. Uh, To me, that was kind of indicative of the interplay that was going on through the whole thing. For funniest line, how can something in 1959 that references exotic dancers slash strippers not be your nominee? (laughs) But uh, the Bonfire and Marshmallow, I feel, is like one that is right out of the Dana Duncan Snark playbook, so I'm going to put that in honorable mention. Do you, either of you have any uh, thoughts as to funniest line or honorable mentions?
1: I, I, I do like the I I've had hangovers before, but this time even my hair hurts. I thought that line was funny other than the family situation. <laughs> It is a good line
0: all right so I'll, I'll put that one into honorable men now you know what I'm gonna put that as a funniest line because it's got so much uh, extra character to it as far as we're concerned. all right so mom you have yet to be exposed to our uh, what we have now referred to as our Stanley rubric. Are you ready to go through our rubric who is Stanley?
2: Well, I'll do my best.
0: All right, so we start this off with Legacy, and since we have a guest on, it's maybe a good refresher, but I'm going to go first on this one and just kind of give my background on this one. So Legacy, we've kind of already referred to this a few different times. These are two people that were big movie stars in their time but have kind of been forgotten. I don't think that an average 30-something or other is necessarily going to know who either of these people are because there aren't any huge movies or the ones that are constantly referred to when we uh, think about old cinema as big movie stars attached to it. It's certainly not going to be Humphrey Bogart or Cary Grant, James Stewart, stuff that's actually survived a little bit of time um, even Judy Garland gets that treatment because of The Wizard of Oz. So it's kind of been one that's flown under the radar for a long time. In addition to that, this is a mostly forgotten romantic comedy, even among some of the, uh, let's say, bigwigs or critics. This was only 99th on the AFI list of like top 100 passion movies, ...of all time, and that's its only recognition outside of its box office at the time. So the only other thing that I could say about it is, while it did launch these two in their initial careers, they certainly didn't have any staying power. I mean, we already referred to the fact that Rock Hudson kind of had to move over to TV, which is usually the inverse of how things happen. Usually you did TV and then would be able to transition into movies... And usually by the time you hit TV, you were pretty well written off. This is kind of one of those situations where uh, I think for the most part, this is a forgotten movie. And the other part of this, I think it might have had larger staying power, had the sequel that they were developing in about 1980 uh, that they had everybody signed up to redo. Everybody was interested, Rock Hudson was signed up, Doris Day was going to do it, although she had been retired by that point, which is part of the reason that's contributing to the fact that uh, it eventually did not get made. Even Tony Randall was ready to uh, star in this one and kind of had a similar script. They had a lot of the pieces ready to go, but it just wasn't realized because I don't know if there was quite the appetite ready to do something like this again and that it would have staying power in the same when it came out so for me I gave it a five I think it's pretty well middle of the road and I'm being a little bit kind because it's mom's favorite movie
2: (laughs) you don't have to be kind because of me and I probably agree with you it it doesn't appeal to a wide uh, variety and you talk about it people have never heard about it and it's nice because I've been able to introduce this rom-com to my family, um, to other people, and um, they've also enjoyed it. Uh, not that they would go out of their way to necessarily watch it again, but for me, it's it's pure joy to watch this film, and I don't know why, it's ju- it just is. And so definitely, I-, I agree with you. Most people don't know anything about it, so I five is, I would think, appropriate.
1: Dad, what do you think? think? I had a seven. And this is why. And I'm going to tell you this. And I don't know if we've ever discussed it, but this is part of my calculation. And I guess I hadn't really articulated it or thought about it. Sometimes legacy is not what the common platform indicates or what the common situation is. For example, what I'm saying is, is legacy to me also has a certain element where If a person has not and that's part of what this, this whole project is, is getting people to watch films that they've never heard of or seen before, which are great films, to get them to watch them again. If a film is something that if you can convince somebody to watch, they go, hey, this is a good film, that's part of the legacy. That it stands up to the test, and you can get people who have no experience with it to watch it and enjoy it. And so that's why I upgraded it, because I've watched so many people through the years that your mother is convinced to watch it come away thinking, oh, this is actually a good film.
0: Yeah, well, to be honest, that's kind of where I sit, having my first viewing on it. So I certainly understand where you're coming from that, with that even if I don't necessarily agree with your premise.
2: Well, Our- to prove a point... Um, my dad sat down and watched it with Dana when um, when he was watching it, even. And he hadn't seen it in a long time, and he thoroughly enjoyed it again. You know, and it had probably been many, many years since he saw it, but he remembered the film, and he sat down, and he watched the entire thing with, with Dana. So so there is some legacy That I mean, he saw it the first time in a the theater. But, yeah, so... Maybe dad's right.
0: So ultimately that average will give us a 5.66, but I gave this a much higher score for impact significance. And I think it has a lot to do with what I already mentioned for my legacy score. This promoted both Doris Day and Rock Hudson as two of the biggest movie stars of their era. This was one of the biggest films of that particular year. It, was a rom com that got a lot of Oscar nomination and recognition, which was not something that necessarily was uh, a commonplace. It certainly isn't right now. I mean, we get it with certain select films, uh, like the one we discussed last week or our previous episode on Roman Holiday. But those are the not the rule, and so I think that has to be taken into effect in some regards. This also was the first of three Doris Day Rock Hudson movies that they would end up doing together, so I think that has to go into as a factor for it. Now, I wouldn't say that this was, like, the biggest thing that changed movie making in the initial five years after it was done, which is usually the parameter we put on these things, but I thought it was at least, with all of these factors, worthy of an 8.5.
1: Dad, what do you think? I had an 8, and I had it for the same reason, because I really think this started a whole uh, revolution of rom-coms that had existed, but not really to the same degree. I mean, there were a lot of them that were okay. They didn't draw real well. But you have to remember that this started into the 1960s. And the 1960s were a period of great turmoil, And so people would go to the film or see a film more as an outlet or an escape. And so they were looking for things that just portrayed life as being much more pleasant. So I think this really set in place a wide variety of films. Because not only did Doris Day do these three, I think she did two or three films with James Garner that were romantic comedies. She did several others. I think she did one with Brian Keith that was called um, With Six You Get uh, Egg Roll. Egg World. yes. Um, about a blended family. So the, it started a whole group of films that ran through the 1960s. And then she got to the point where she started getting in her 40s. And for Hollywood, of course, that's when you aged out. So she ended up doing television. And that was how she ended her career. But I think that that's why this has some impact significance to me is just because I think this started because it it really was the one that made a lot of money for the producers. It was a simple formula, you know, other than the uh, some relatively simple production costs, you could do the film. It would take short shooting schedule, low budget and make money. And it started a whole group of these films that came through the sixties and made people feel better. Well,
2: I, I agree. I think that this was the first of a whole genre of, of the rom-com. I think that um, before this, there, there wasn't that silly, ha-ha, um, cutesy movie. And the two of them have a chemistry. And I think it's that chemistry that can be both serious and it could be silly, that really worked and I think that from here it catapulted not just her but others to make these sort of silly nonsensical movies that don't have heavy plots and so I, I, I think an 8 is an appropriate score as well.
0: So that is going to end up giving us an 8.17 for our final number and Guess I if I'm going to put my finger on it, I will say that uh, one of the things you two have kind of danced around in trying to describe this is – I don't know if it created a genre itself, but it, it's more of a subgenre. To this point, a lot of the movies that I mentioned before were more romantic, more sentimental. This is kind of a subgenre where it's almost like a Jerry Lewis rom-com.
2: <laughs> no, have you really watched much Jerry Lewis? I wouldn't there's a lot that of
0: slapstick, all. there's a lot of short uh, cut humor. there's uh, a, a lot more silliness and rather uh, ridiculous into it. And there's a certain pacing to it that are all familiar to that aspect
1: to it, as far as I'm concerned. I think it's a little different than that. this This was a lot more innuendo. It was considered at the time a highly sophisticated comedy because of its strong innuendo. You had to stop and think about certain things and what the double meanings were, the double intent uh, behind certain things. And I think that that's working. This, I think, is what you would call an intellectual rom-com. There were several rom-coms. It was boy meets girl, girl does something. Boy does something even worse and screws up. Girl forgives. They run off into the sunset. Relatively simple and and mindless. This you had to actually think about and do some understanding of the situation. And I think this created a more of an intellectual rom-com.
0: I I disagree with that entirely. I think that the other romantic comedies are much more um, intellectual than this. This, to oh. me, it, maybe the humor is more intellectual, but it's just simply less sentimental and less sappy than some of the other ones, which are trying to tug a little bit more at the emotional levels of things. What other ones? Roman Holiday, the Philadelphia story,
1: bringing up Baby. I mean I just don't to think mention any of theme. these are really uh, that much... They're not really
2: comedies, in my opinion. They're more of a drama. This was really a true comedy. It was meant to be funny.
0: That's not not, the definition of comedy when it comes to film and theater.
2: I'm going to stay out of that. I
1: think it's much different. I I think it's much different than in this is. You look at the rom-coms that came after. They're much more like this than they were Roman Holiday also disagree there are
0: certain elements to them that have these but i think there are two varieties of rom-coms and i take this as somebody who has watched an inordinate amount of them lately due to how they've been feeling or their general mood anyway mom what do you have down for novelty
2: um i i think the whole um like I said, this is, a, a to me, a unique situation where they bring in so much humor into into a love story. And so I, of course, love the novelty of the old movies and and just that, that it stands the test of time. That even though they're talking about stuff that, you know, a party line, um, and it it's still it's transcends time. And so, I don't know. I would I would think a nine.
1: Dad, what do you have for novelty? I had an eight. Because I thought there was a lot of uh, ways of filming this, from the bathtub scene to how they blended stories, how they modernized some of the things that were going on in New York, and how they kind of played up this whole of you know the the wealthy and the it just it just seemed like to me it started uh, it was kind of a a, a different take on the rom com and where it should or could go.
0: Mom, I didn't uh, hear you give a number. Did you? I said a nine. Okay. Well, that's what I gave it as well. Ultimately, I think there are several factors that you guys have not necessarily mentioned. So, number one, the title is incredibly suggestive for 1959 alone. I think that it was chosen to be suggestive. There is a strong, independent career female in an era where that was not a thing. We think back to the 50s housewife, and it's the um, June Cleaver of America. We don't often get these types of characters, and not only is she a independent, live-alone woman, but she's taking pride in that particular fact. Now, they do undercut it a bit by saying, oh, a woman who lives alone can't be possibly happy, so there is some <laughs> 50s-ification of that particular plotline, but it's still there. Uh, we have an entire situation in 1959... Of kind of giving voice to what men can really be like when they're incredibly desperate and being stupid, and that whole Harvard guy situation where he's <laughs> forcing himself on her repeatedly, and you you really get to see the nature of some men from the fifties that is so cringy in in a modern sense. I just I, I barely could watch that particular scene. I'm like, dude. Boundaries
1: <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> uh, if we wanna, are we I'll gonna get, talk more about that later? We've mentioned so much about the
0: sexual innuendo parts of uh, this movie, the hints at certain things. Uh, the mention of being gay in a movie is by itself somewhat novel for nineteen fifty nine. Or how about, tw- how about
2: we're both over how about we're both over twenty one? you know, her whole comment about, oh, just ask me, we're both over 21.
0: The bathtub scene, you mentioned it before, that there's a sexual nature to it because it's implying they're both naked, but also that there's a certain level of intimacy that's available in that that notion and how they um, scripted out or storyboarded that particular scene. And then finally... We had an entire line or conversation, yes, it was a throwaway, it was a joke, but about strippers and calling them as such. I mean, this movie has so many different barriers it's crossing in that piece. I couldn't help but give it a 9 on novelty. It's not quite to the level of a a movie from the same year, Some Like It Hot, which we gave a straight 10 as far as novelty. But this is pretty close, and this is only suggestive of what was very soon to be coming with the 60s and the 70s and the rawness that we'd get even just like 10 years later with something like Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, uh, but the average between the three of us ends up at an 8.67. So let's move to classicness. This has constantly been our most difficult category. So... To save mom a little bit, I think we should go
1: first. But, Dad, what do you think? I had a 6.5. And the reason I had 6.5 is because just kind of the womanizing atmosphere around Brad Allen uh, does not hold well anymore. Um, Also, the fact that uh, the Tony character played by Nick Adams was just vile under today's standards and would not be accepted in the Me Too generation. So it's been really kind of diminished. And by the way, I was just going to comment. When this film was done, Nick Adams was a rising star. He had been considered a bright spot, a young actor in Hollywood. He had done No Time for Sergeants, which was based upon an Andy Griffin uh, comedy routine that was written into a stage play that he played in and then did a film on Um, From what I'm gathering, the character Nick Adams was playing in this film was Nick Adams. It wasn't him playing anything. This is the way he was. He was a drunken lout who um, uh, sexually harassed most of his female co-stars, and who by 1967, no one would work with. And by 1968, he overdosed on barbiturates. So he's a kind of a tragic figure. But I think there's reason why the classicness kind of uh, exemplifies that, that target or that trajectory for a, a character like Tony, played by Nick Adams.
0: So I'm going to start mine with a kind of nuanced position that we've taken to this category. Does it make you have the same feelings that you were supposed to have about the movie in the places you're supposed to have them. I think it hits a lot of tones that it's still somewhat funny. For being a movie that's, what, uh, 60 years old? I I think if my math's right, uh, 61, roughly. It still is actually very funny, as far as I'm concerned. And I have a high degree of humor snobbery when when it comes to things. There are not a ton of things that make me laugh. I will often say... Certain things are just not funny. Again, unpopular opinion, but I don't think Seinfeld is funny in his stand-up or in his show. So I know that that is, like, sacrilege, but... So if something actually appeals to me in that way, I'm going to give it a little bit of credit in that regard. So as far as the feelings and the rest of that, the the humor... Uh, the certain parts of sentimentality, the vulnerableness when we're supposed to feel that, I think all of those notes still hold up. But this movie has some very definite flaws, and I will just mention it for two particular things uh, as far as the, the very cringy scenes for me. Number one is one we've mentioned repeatedly, and that's the Nick Adams character forcing himself on uh, Doris Day's character, Jan, repeatedly not once but like six different times in that it's something that's almost unbearable to watch with a modern sentimentality it has not aged well probably even a decade later let alone 60 plus years later the other one for me is the fact that they had rock hudson basically doing innuendo and making fun to a certain extent of gay people given how his career ended up and the fact that he was famously gay and died from aids it's a very cringy thing i'm like oh my god i can't believe they they have this in here and that he was willing to do it and yet i know it was so much a product of its time but even that given all of the history and context surrounding it it made me cringe I think there are just elements of this that and that's somewhat of an innocent mistake, somewhat. But there and they don't like go or lean heavily into it to the point where it's really off putting, but you just have to, in context, it maybe I'm a little bit more sensitive on it than I should be, but it's still something that gave me a problem. And then the final thing I'll mention. And it's something that Uh, I texted Mom about while we were deciding to do this last night. The entire premise of this movie has to take off from the standpoint of a party line. And had I not grown up with Mom, I wouldn't know what the fuck a party line was. (laughs) (laughs) There were 5,000 of them allegedly that existed in 2000, but they were all ones where it was on a single phone line. Nobody actually shared it. So this has not been a thing or something that existed for a very long time. And just from that standpoint, I don't think it's uh, accessible or approachable to anybody of a, uh, that basically was born after 1980.
2: So well, probably probably that, not, but they were very common. My grandparents had one. I had one growing up and in the late 70s until I think we got a private line in 1980 or 81 um and so we were from 1978 to like 1981 we had a party line with two other of our neighbors and um uh it it proved interesting for sure but it yeah certainly um,
0: need to be explained in context i think people would understand it and this movie does go to some lengths to give you a clue into what this is. But it's just not something that people even would recognize was a thing in a day where we have some, like everybody used to have two or three phone lines to themselves, let alone their individual cell phones strapped to their uh, thigh. So I I, I just don't know if it's the same accessibility. But before we move too much further, I want to give my score, I had a four.
1: Okay. Well, and and I knew about party lines because my grandparents had one on the farm because that was one of the things that was common out in the rural areas. You'd run one line out and cover as many farms as you could. And literally, they would have a system that you would if you were trying to ring somebody, they'd have a dispatcher in town, and the dispatcher would send a call through to you. And everybody would have a short ring and a long ring. So it would be bring, 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 or whatever. And then each party on the line would have their own ring. So it might be your two, two short rings and a long ring, or two long rings and a short ring, or just one short ring. That was how you knew the call was for you, and then you would pick it up. And that was very common in rural back into the 60s until it became more economical for uh, phone companies to lay phone lines and to bury cables and all kinds of other stuff.
0: All right, before we lose the entire thread, Mom, what did you have down?
2: Well, I understand in today's society how, how this probably does offend some people. However, when I watch this, I guess I try and put my try and put my thought process into the time of the day and where you guys were talking about you know the the Harvard man problem i was really proud of her for you know pushing him away and being able to say no and So I didn't take that necessarily in the same same way I never have the whole time I've watched that. It's never really offended me other than the fact that I was proud of her for being able to say no and and, you know, step away from that and and not be offended and not have it affect her client relationship because because she was a strong woman. So that part, you know, didn't bother me. I'm sure that uh, Rock Hudson said those lines tongue in cheek and they were meant to be funny. And there are still jokes that are made today about, you know, recipes and, you know, um, your relationship with your mother and all that kind of thing. And I don't find that necessarily, especially for that day and age, they were at least acknowledging, you know, the whole homosexuality was becoming more commonplace um, even back then or that they would even talk about it. So I guess I've never I've never really looked at it in the same vein that both of you had. I would have given this like a six and a half.
0: Here's the thing and I, I think this is very much true. You would see uh, a movie through the same sentimentality the first time you watched it. So I think that is a little bit different where I just watched it in 2020 and you've probably watched it in 1985. There, There's going to be a gap in our difference of where we come at it from in that sense. I Absolutely. Fun-
2: and I understand where you're coming from. But I think, too, that it's a time period piece. In some ways, there's it's a time period piece. And like much like watching Mad Men, you know? how that's offensive to some people because of the whole Me Too movement and all of the things that that happened there. I can go back into this time period and say, okay, this was acceptable. Well, maybe not acceptable because it would never, you know, any rape or anything wouldn't be acceptable. But this this was handled very well by a very strong woman. And I think it sent messages to women that you can stand up for yourself. You can, you can be anything that you want to be. You can be a career woman. You can decide that you don't want to get married and be a single woman and be happy with that. And, and you can fend off people if that's, if you, if you want and, and come out of it a better person. So I, I, I don't know. I don't find it as offensive as, as probably what you do in your generation.
0: There are just some cringy moments. And there are occasionally things in cinema that are, are just, they don't fit. But I, what I, I'm glad you mentioned period pieces, because to me this is not a period piece. This is a product of its time, but a period piece is when you apply a modern sensitivity with hindsight towards a past period of time. And this doesn't have that. This was in the moment. So I, I wouldn't classify this as a period piece in the same way that Dad and I have talked often about how uh, period pieces tend to be more classic because they have that hindsight and sensitivity.
2: Okay, it's not Gone with the Wind. I get it.
0: Well, okay. No, no, no. <laughs> That's its own discussion for a much different time. Oh, very- yeah. Uh, let's move on before again we we lose where we're at. Uh, rewatchability, mom. This is your favorite. I have to assume this is a ten for
2: you. It's an absolute ten. Yes.
1: All right, dad. What do you think? I had a nine, and the reason I picked nine was is because it's a film that I don't have to be in any kind of mood. You know, I mean, sometimes there's films that if you're having a bad day that you really love a film, you just can't watch it because it's not going to improve your mood. Um, this is a film that no matter what mood I'm in, if it's on, I'll watch the, you know, wherever it is in the middle and just kind of lose myself in it and just kind of laugh and be fine. So that's why I gave it a 9. It's not something I'm going to ne- go to on a regular basis. But if I find and I have nothing else to want to do anything else, this is a film I can sit and watch again.
0: I will repeat many of the same things that you have both already mentioned. It's light, it's silly. There aren't really any um, extra emotional swings. It is easily digestible, it's short. Uh, it can be had on just about any occasion. And so it's a lot more rewatchable than most films. But there are some other. Being a guy that's gravitated towards a lot of romantic comedies, I'm not sure it's in my go to's list, but it's one that I would happily rewatch if the situation uh, arose or um, that uh, it, I would enjoy showing to someone else for the first time in the same way that mom has had that enjoyment before. So I'm going to give it a 7.5, and that'll round out the average to 8.83. All right, so just to repeat the categories, we have 5.67 for Legacy. We have 8.17 for Impact Significance. Novelty, we had an 8.67. Classicness, 5.67. You're seeing a lot of the same details at the tail end of these, but 8.83 for Rewatchability. And finally, an 87 in the audience score off of Rotten Tomatoes. uh, That translates to an 8.7 for a final total of 45.71. And that will currently rank it right in our sweet spot of rom-coms. The, (laughs) yes, our uh, rom-com section, which has been populated by a huge list of them at this point. All right, so remaining questions. Most of this movie is centered around Rock Hudson's character, Brad, seemingly having this plan. Oh, five or six dates and I'll have her on my side. I think that was mentioned around the point where he creates the Rex Stetson character. By the way, if you needed any more of a hint that this is a fake character, call your character Rex Stetson from Texas. (laughs) (laughs)
2: he came up with it on a whim (laughs)
0: shocking (laughs) yeah Uh, anyway the uh, question I eventually have though is I guess what was his ultimate plan in this I don't think it was to be how it ended up and it really unravels and he seems to keep continuing down this wormhole was he trying to win her on his side and then, like, reveal, oh, I'm Brad, I'm really not that bad of a guy, so you should stop give it, or making uh, this such a big deal about the party line? Was it, I'm going to sleep with her? Was it, I, I just... It was I don't to get take her away was.
2: from Jonathan. He thought it was a challenge to, to take the... And, and Jonathan admitted He's like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna um, talk to you about her. You're just gonna steal her away. The whole point was for him to steal her away from Jonathan.
0: Boy, I didn't wow. get
1: that at all. No, no, <laughs> he was all about crossing the finish line, going through the golden gate. That's all it mattered. No, that's, that's his he ultimate goal. He wanted to take her that's what away. He was no, with every woman. That's all and- he was. Anyway, the point
0: being, I, I just – you would think that for a guy that seemingly uh, has is based his charisma on always being in control, that he would have a bigger or master objective, and it never seems like he ever has one, especially by the time we get to it. He just continues further and further and I'm further down the rabbit I'm sorry. I think it was
2: hole. a challenge for him because he had – Right away, when Jonathan starts talking about her and says you know how wonderful she is, and he said, you're not going to tell me her name, and it's Jan. Oh, and what's her last name? Oh, I'm not going to tell you. You think I'm going to tell you? You're just going to steal her away, basically. And that's exactly what he decided he was going to try to do. And she, she just happened to be the woman on the other end of the party line, and it was a complete challenge. And some men... Just like to rise to the challenge, they don't have anything else in mind except the conquest, and I think that well, now was now you're
0: dance description.
2: Well, not necessarily, but I just he wanted to beat his friend at his own game, and so I just I think the I, whole I don't thing think was that was to,
0: any part of his motivation had anything to do with Jonathan, okay. I guess it, art is in the interpretation, but I, I, that's why this is a remaining or unanswerable question, as
1: far as I'm concerned.
0: Do either of you have any?
1: I mean, we we discussed Rock Hartson's career to, to uh, a bit. I did find there was certain irony of him making jokes about homosexuality, and he had to pretty much closet. Entire time he was in Hollywood, and um, to that extent, and I, uh, you guys don't real, or and I maybe Chris remembers how much of a scandal it was when Rock Hudson died of AIDS. Um, yeah. He had been on, uh, he couldn't find work, and he did a a guest appearance or a guest spot on Dynasty, and at the time, this is in 1985, no one knew what AIDS was or how it was transmitted or how it went, and there was a scene where Rock Hudson had to kiss Linda Evans, and um, he then was diagnosed or was said he died of AIDS, and there was this huge backlash because Linda Evans was all, you know, do I have AIDS now because Rock Hudson kissed me, and oh my God, and you know, it was a huge deal back in the uh There's a lot of misinformation, 80s. yeah. um, It was
0: back when the Reagan administration refused to acknowledge its existence.
1: Yeah, and ironically, um, you know, when Reagan left office in 1988 or in 89, January of 89, they asked about the AIDS epidemic, and George Herbert Walker Bush said, hey, you know, I think we're going to get this thing resolved. I've got this really um, great Uh, doctor who's working in my administration now named Anthony Fauci, who's going to work on AIDS.
0: Yeah, it was his first uh, primary role in the government. I only had one other remaining question. In most films of the era, you had one line that at least was like the name drop for the title, or why this thing was pillow talk. When you think about that phrase it often has a association with post coital nature and there's none of that in here because they don't actually hook up until after the movie is over so why the hell is this the name of the movie it was I think, I think
2: at the time I think at the time I mean they were calling each other at night while both were On the bed, you know, um, they had phones next to their bed and um, they were both thinking of each other when they went to sleep and when they got up. And those are when the phone calls took place. And I think it's more of the the time of day and where they were when they were thinking and, and talking. You have to remember, they didn't have cell phones, so they couldn't talk other places or, you know, they were working during the day. Well, at least she was. So the best time to talk was when she was laying in bed at night. And so I believe that that has a lot to do with it.
1: They fought about the title. They actually were going to change it to a song they were going to put in the movie uh, so that it would potentially sell more records. But they didn't, and and the song was not part of the movie. So I don't know. I mean, Pillow Talk historically has been, that's one of the reasons why they always talk about who the most important th- or advisors are to presidents, and it's always been the first lady. And the, the talk is is that it's r- the reason that it's the most important is because of quote-unquote pillow talk. Because as you're ending your day, you'll s- start talking to your wife while you're in bed about things that bothered you or things that came through it, and you get opinions about certain things or aspects of the day so i think it was more of a a, a title that related to what most people of that generation understood more than that it actually fit the movie itself
0: possibly but i i think it's somewhat of a misnomer and i, I know that the song went through it that opens up as its theme which is an incredible earworm, by the way, and it has been annoying me since I stopped watching the film <laughs> this morning. But I, I just think there's a somewhat of a missed connection on what the current association is, and I think I would have to try and explain this to anybody who I showed it to later on. Well, why is it named that? Couldn't give you the foggiest. So, All right. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner next week. We will be doing the Apollo 13 episode. We promise to get that to you. We do have plans for it, especially because uh, it is one of dad's favorite movies. And I just didn't want him to necessarily miss out on uh, the discussion for that one because he was sick. We didn't or weren't sure that he was going to be able to make this one. That's what we have coming up for the show. Any last words from either of you?
1: Thanks for letting me be a part Absolutely And and, uh, I am feeling much better Um, Two days ago It was unclear what I exactly Had wrong And uh, how long it was going to take to get over But fortunately it was not COVID And um, um, I recovered rather rapidly So um, But even that was not uh, Known until Probably early afternoon. So, just everybody
0: take caution, be extra precautious, um, please wear a mask, and just stay safe, and we will be back with you as soon as we possibly can. Greatest Movie of All Time podcast is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FF.